Thanks for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. We are one church at five locations, streaming online every Sunday morning at live.faithishere.org. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. And if you'd like to watch or listen to previous messages, or if you'd like to learn more about who we are as a church and how you can stay connected, head over to faithishere.org. We're talking about the art of joy and uh, learning what it means to have that joy-filled life in Christ Jesus. It only can give. Take your Bibles out, turn to Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, and we'll start in a few minutes with verse number 18. Welcome today. So good to have each and every one of you here. And uh, last week we began our series from the book of Philippians. We looked at the apostle Paul, that even though he's in jail, even though he's in prison, he still writes about the joy of the Lord. We talked about how you can sing in the rain in any kind of situation, any kind of circumstance, and know that song will not be on our new album. So, uh, uh, tonight, you won't want to miss that. Let me tell you a story while you're looking in your Bibles about a 17-year-old girl, true story by the name of Karen Ching. She was from Fremont, California, and uh, she had a perfect score on both sections of her SAT test. She had a perfect 8,000 on the California aptitude test, which had never, ever been done before. So she was the very, very top, straight-A student all throughout her high school days at, San, at Mission San Jose High School. She describes herself as a typical teenager. She said, I uh, munch on junk food, I talk for hours on the phone, and I put off my homework just like anybody else might do. But that's not how her teachers describe her. Her teachers described her as a wonder girl. She has this unquenchable thirst for knowledge, and she has the ability to retain every single thing she reads. Wouldn't you like that ability yourself? Wouldn't you love to be that smart to retain everything you ever read? Well, this girl was just a brilliant genius. She wants to be an attorney and later a judge, and so she's already been accepted into Harvard School of Law. She was interviewed, and the interviewer, because of her perfect test scores and all this, had never been done before. When they interviewed her, they asked her this question, what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? And she looked back and said, I have no idea. I would like to know myself. I think this is characteristic of our generation. We, we, we talk, we have no idea what the meaning of life is really all about. This generation has grown up with more opportunities, more material blessings, more education, more medical health care, more entertainment, more travel opportunities than any other generation in the history of, of our world. And yet, they have no idea what the meaning of life is really all about. Francis Schaeffer, who is a Christian philosopher and author, makes this statement. The damnation of this generation is that it doesn't know why it has meaning. So what is the meaning of life? I guess that's the big question we have to ask ourselves this morning. And when we discover that, when we discover our real meaning and purpose in life, then I think we will find our joy that comes along with knowing why we are here. For those who don't believe in God, this life is all there is. And so they go after all the money they can find. They go after position and prestige and things and stuff and and relationships and and this world's pleasure And because this is all they're looking for. But Paul is going to always view life through an internal perspective. When Paul thinks about the meaning of life, he also thinks about eternity. So let's stand together. We're going to read what Paul has to say in Philippians chapter 1. We'll start with verse number 18 and uh, really the second part of that verse today. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Everybody say rejoice. 
For I know that though your prayers and the help given me by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. And so he's talking about his imprisonment, his being put in jail, and yet it will work out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will always have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ may be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with you for all your progress and joy in your faith. There's that word again, joy. So that through my being with you, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you, God, for these powerful words this morning. And I just pray that somehow we will begin to grasp the meaning of what it means to live as Christ. Open up our hearts and minds, we pray in Christ Jesus. In your name we ask all these things. Amen and amen. God bless you. You may be seated. To live as Christ, what a statement to make. What, what, what a purpose statement, what a, a mission statement. For me, to live is Christ. It is all about Jesus. And for the Apostle Paul, Jesus Christ is at the center of his life. He is at the circumference of his life. His whole life is wrapped around the one person of knowing Jesus Christ. Knowing God. Whatever God wanted for the Apostle Paul, that's what the Apostle Paul wanted. And so you see this idea in Paul's writings of an absolute submission of his will to the will of his Heavenly Father. He says, I don't know what God has in store for me. If he wants me to stay, I'll stay. If he wants me to go, I'll go. But the bottom line for me to live is Christ. It's all about Jesus Christ, his life is dedicated to serving the Lord. And I will tell you, when we arrive at this point in our own spiritual journey, that we will begin to learn what that joy-filled life is all about. When we can say with that absolute self-abandonment, for me to live is Christ, then we'll know the joy that Paul is talking about. We'll begin to understand it from an eternal perspective. Christ literally transforms both my life and my death. So for me to live is Christ. In this life, it's Christ. In the next life, it's Christ. For me to live is Christ. Everything revolves around him. Now that's a very weighty statement for me to live is Christ. And I want to begin to just examine some of the implications of that statement from this passage today. First of all, I want you to notice the dilemma. The dilemma that Paul faced. And look at verse 22 again, if you would. If I, if I go on living in this body, this will remain fruitful labor for me. What shall I choose? I do not know. You see, Paul went living in this tension. His whole life was revolving around this dilemma or this tension. He loved God so much, he couldn't wait to be with the Lord. Am I the only one who feels like that today? Isn't it exciting to know Jesus? And when you have a relationship with him, you love him so much, you thank him so much, you care about him so much, you just want to be with him. 
It, it's like the prayer in Revelation. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. And I think at the end of every one of our prayers, when we pray, we say, God, even so, Lord Jesus, come. It could be today. I'm ready. I want to go home with you. Uh, that's an exciting part of our life today. But there's also this tension because Paul knew that if he left this earth, if he was killed by Roman guards, he would also leave that church behind. And so he lives in the middle of this tension for me to live as Christ. If I die, that's going to be great. I'll be with the Lord. But if he lets me stay, then I'll help God's people who he loves so much. He says, I'm in a dilemma. I have a tension going on. He says, if I stay and remain, it will mean fruitful labor. It will mean for the Apostle Paul, I can do another missionary tour. I can go around and revisit and strengthen all the churches. I can lead more converts to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's more opportunities for me to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if I stay, if he keeps me on the earth, it will remain mean fruitful labor for me. What do we live for in our lives? What are we living for right now? I, I think for most people, they live for themselves. Be very honest. We live for ourselves. We, we, we live for myself and my family and those things around us. And we give, and, and what happens is if we're not careful, we will give Christ our leftovers. We expend our energy on our job and our family and our stuff and our things and gaining and keeping and acquiring. And if I have anything left over, God, you get it. But the Apostle Paul says it starts with Christ. For me to live is Christ. He becomes my passion. He is my purpose. And the result, he says, from that will be fruitful labor. Now, now here, here's the dilemma. A child of God, every child of God, every believer knows that when he dies, his spirit immediately goes into the presence of the Lord. So when I do a funeral service, you have a body here in front of us, and we know that that body is the tent, it is the shell, it is the outward, but the real person is right now in the presence of the Lord. For Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. And so as soon as death occurs, that union of body and spirit is dissolved, the spirit goes into the presence of the Lord. Then there's going to come a resurrection day when the trump of God sounds and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Body and spirit are reunited and we will have our glorified bodies that he writes about in Corinthians and in 1 Thessalonians. And so we know that upon death, it's a promotion. Right away, we are in God's presence. We graduate. It's what we've worked our entire life for to be in the presence of the Lord. But if I know that, I am free to live right now with purpose and meaning because I know my life is tied to eternity. It's not based on the here and now alone. It is not based on that which is temporary. It is not based on that which is fleeting. It is based on eternity. It's based on forever. And so that means I can live my life in fullness now and say for me to live is Christ. Until you're ready to die, you won't really be ready to live. Until you're ready to die, you won't really be ready to live. And for the believer, it's Christ in this life, and then it's, or Christ in the next life, but it is always, for me to live, is Christ. Now, or in the future, forever, for me to live is Christ. What a powerful statement. Look at verse 22 again. He says, if I go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I 
choose. Look at the word choose. The word choose there is from the Greek. It also means to be hemmed in. You've heard the expression, he's between a rock and a hard place. You know, you can't make a decision. You can't make the dilemma. You can't figure it out. Uh, Let me see if I can describe that tension for you. Say you are a uh, man who has to work on the road, and you go on the job, and you're going to be gone for your wife for several weeks at a time, working from afar. And you miss your wife so very, very much. What do you do? You arrange the motel room. You get it all set up. You call your honey on the phone, and you say, baby, drop everything, come join me, your honey's here. And we want to spend a couple of days together. I got a couple days off, and I want to fly you out and bring you to where I am at right now, and we can be together. Now, doesn't that sound romantic? On the other hand, the wife has three small children at home who need her, who need her presence, who need them to take care of her, to take care of those kids, who who need her to look after them, who need her to feed them and watch over them. And so this is the dilemma, to depart and be with you. That's the most joyous thing I can think of, but I need to stay home so I can take care of my three small children and one day we'll be together in the future. This is Paul's dilemma, to be with the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he loves so very, very much with all that was in him, but also to be with the ones that needed him so desperately back here on the earth. The churches at Philippi, the church at Thessalonica, the church at Corinth, they needed the apostle Paul. And this is kind of the dilemma every one of his face. How can I choose? I I want to be the Lord, but I've got so much to do right here on the earth. And that's Paul's dilemma. I think sometimes believers tend to go to extremes. And sometimes we go to one or two extremes. We, we get so caught up in this world and working in this world and doing in this world and thinking about this world and, a, and, and, a, and taking care of ourselves in this world, we totally forget about the future. And we fail to understand this world is not my home, that this, my citizenship is not here, my citizenship is in heaven. And I am just a stranger passing through and this world holds no allure for me because I've got heaven waiting on me. And then others go to the other extreme where all they do is want to sit on the rooftop and gaze and wait for Jesus to come back. And they think about heaven all the time as escapism. And so if God comes back, I will escape this world. I'll get out of the trials and tests. I'll get out of all my persecution. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, so I can get out of here, so I can escape this world. I will tell you, it's the next world that motivates us to serve God in this world because we know that everything we do is fixed on eternity. For me to live is Christ. And so the return of Christ is not to be viewed as escapism or getting out of this world, but rather the Lord said, occupy until I come. We are an occupation force on planet earth to bring his kingdom to pass. And so there's got to be that balance between the two. Because heaven is real, I love people, I share the gospel with everybody I see, I try to touch as many hurting people that are out there, and I will, as Paul says in Corinthians, I will glorify God in everything that I do. So Christ comes to bear in my work, he comes to bear in my family, he is in charge of my home, my finances, my life, my everything, why? Because for me to live is Christ. And he pushes me to love people. There are people that come into the church and think, boy, the church exists to serve me. And so they come in wanting to know, what will you do for me? 
What will this church provide for me? How will they take care of me? How will they meet my every need? And what happens is if we are not careful, we turn the church and we turn the gospel into a me-centered approach. But when we understand the phrase for me to live as Christ, then our living becomes how to serve others and best advance the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about meeting my every need, but I understand that I'm called to serve others and I'm called to minister to the body of Christ. I'm called to bear one another's burdens uh, and I'm called to meet the needs of the body. So we've got people who are in the church, in the house today, who are saying, feed me, feed me, feed me. What can you do for me? And there are others who are saying, where can I touch? Where can I minister? Where can I serve? And when you understand that concept, for me to live as Christ, it's not for me to live as me. For me to live as Christ, it's about him. He is at the center of everything in my life. And so we see that dilemma choose how can I choose I want to be with the Lord so much and God leaves me here on the earth and which is better the second point is simply this the desire look at verse 23 he answers his own question with these next few verses he says, I can't decide I can't choose so he goes on in verse 23 I'm torn between the two I desire to depart and be with Christ which is far which is better by far so his desire ultimately is to be with Christ He said, of everything in this world, the best thing is to be with Jesus, with him for all eternity. Now, look at the phrase there. He says, I desire to depart. Paul has a very healthy view of death. I desire to depart. For if I depart, I'll be in his presence. I will be with him. He was not afraid to die. The word depart is a, is a very colorful word in the Greek language. And I, and I want to give you four different shades of meaning to this word depart. And when you begin to understand these four shades of meaning, you'll get excited about death. Okay? I mean, I don't, I don't know if I can say it. That, that's, okay. Number one, depart was used as a word to take down a tent. So you would take down your tent, and it was used by soldiers. And so when they would talk about departing, they would talk about taking down their tent, their temporary tents out there on the battlefield, and they would return to their permanent home, okay? Tents temporary, homes permanent. And so that's what the word meant in the Greek language. Now, if you are like me, uh, when you hear the word depart in terms of camping, you like that word. Because I don't like to camp. I don't like tents. I don't like to camp. I don't like to go out in the wilderness. I don't like, that's not me. I don't like sleeping on the ground. When my, when my kids were small, we had a, an idea one year. My wife and I were going to take them on a camping trip. Everybody, all the other families did it. So we're going to do it. We're going to be like the American family. We're going to go camping and we had this tent and we pitched it and it was like we had five bodies laying in a row in this one little small four man tent. And, and the problem was, uh, my son Jason was a better wetter and we're all in this tent and you can tell him about that when you see him in the later services uh but but we're laying in, and no one wanted to sleep by jason and so we'd wake up in the morning and a little river would be running right down the middle of our tent so when it came time to depart when it came time to take the tent down, we were all filled with joy because it was like 108 degrees out there at night and uh, we were burning up and we were miserable and, we're, and, and it was just a disaster. And so that kind of ruined me for camping. And so, so to part in, in, the, in, the Hebrew, in the Greek language literally means to take the tent down and go to your permanent dwelling place. Paul writes about this in Corinthians. 
He says this body is like a tent. And one day we're going to take this tent down and our spirits will go and we'll be in the presence of the Lord. It is a temporary tent. He says this body's getting older. It's decaying. It's winding down. But I will forever be with the Lord. It's taken down at death and our spirit goes to be with the Lord. Another word for depart is is like sailors who would loosen a ship. And so you have a, a ship on the port and you take those big lines off and that ship goes out to sea. That's the word that was used for depart. Have you been on a cruise ship? You're sitting up there on the Lido deck and you're eating all you want and the horn blows it means you better be on the boat or you'll be left behind and they take those big lines and they pull them on in and you go out and you forget all your cares for the next week that's what the word depart means okay Another shade of meaning, the third shade, is to set a prisoner free. And so when they talked about releasing a prisoner from prison, they would say it's time for him to depart. He would leave his prison behind. And so it is at our death. We are free from all of our limitations. I am free from this earthly body. I am free from every desire of the flesh. It's done. It's over. It's finished. I'm free from all of my aches and pains. I am set free. And so when you depart, when you die as a child of God, you are immediately set free in the presence of the Lord. It's no wonder the apostle Paul says, I desire to depart. The fourth way it's used, it's used to unyoke an oxen. And so when they would take an oxen that would pull the heavy load along, when they took the yoke off the top of the oxen's necks, they would use the word depart. It's time to depart the oxen. It was to take the burden off the animal. And so it is. When, When a believer dies in Christ Jesus, he lays every single burden down. Paul says, to die is gain, to die is gain. I depart from this world. The tent comes down, the ship sets sail. I am finally set free in my body, and every labor and every pain and all toil is done and over. To depart, I desire to depart. Because if I depart, I will be with the Lord. It is absolutely the best. That was his desire. I desire to depart. But look at the next three verses. We also see this sense of duty from the Apostle Paul. Duty. Look at verse number 24. But it is more necessary. Everybody say necessary. Necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with you with all progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Now, the word duty is a word we don't like to use a lot. Obligation. Don't use those words an awful lot today. Uh, They're not popular because we are very self-indulgent people by nature. We're very self-absorbed. And so when we talk about duty or obligation, we say, don't lay that on me. Okay? We're more about fulfillment and success and happiness. Those are words we like. Fulfillment, success, happiness, what's in it for me. And what has happened is this this belief of the culture of success and fulfillment has seeped into the church. So if I stand up in the church and I talk about obligation and I talk about duty, immediately you say, wait a minute, I'm not under legalism. Don't put me under bondage. Don't put me under the law. Don't talk about duty or obligation. And we, and we have this kind of mentality in the church, if I feel like it, I'll do it. If I don't feel like it, I won't. And you can't make me. And there is very 
little sense of obligation in the church today. And the result of that is we have a weak, anemic, selfish church. We are like the apostle Paul writes, you are, I write to you as, I would write to you as under spiritual, but I have to write to you as under carnal. Because you act like the world. You have this sense of entitlements. There are certain things in the believer's life that are simply good spiritual disciplines. Prayer. I hope you don't view prayer as a duty and obligation. I hope it is the joy and excitement of your life. Prayer. I get to pray today. Fills you with joy. But even when you don't feel like praying, you still ought to pray because it is a spiritual discipline that allows you to hear from God and connect with the Lord even when you don't feel like it. If you only read the Bible when you feel like it, you may never feel like it because there's always something else pressing in on you. If you only attend church when you feel like it, if you only serve others in ministry when you feel like it, spiritual disciplines are for your growth and service. They are not based on feelings. Paul says it's necessary for me to stay with you because if I stay with you, it will mean your growth and your progress and your joy in the Lord. It's necessary that I remain here on the earth. I have a duty and an obligation to the church at Philippi. I'd rather be with the Lord But I am under duty, obligation. Where is our sense of duty and obligation today? He says in verse 24, it is necessary that I remain. He was not basing it on feelings. And so he says, I will stay in prison. I will witness. I'll endure beatings. I'll suffer for Christ. I'll suffer for the church. And he says in verse 25, being confident of this, that this duty that I'm obligated to will produce in you progress and joy. Because I remain, you'll keep growing in the Lord Jesus Christ, and your joy will continue to grow. Thus, even though I got this dilemma going on, duty compels me to stay and serve. What inspires your duty today? I don't think there's any volunteer who works in the nursery that says, oh boy, I get to change a messy diaper today. I don't know about you, but I never ever feel like changing diapers, right? But duty calls. (laughs) You take the words of Jesus Christ seriously. Whatever is done to the least of these, you've done it unto me. I want to close with a story about discipleship and what it means to be a disciple. In Judea, the disciple, the rabbi, and the disciple had a very unique relationship. And so when a rabbi called the disciple to follow him, it meant follow me wherever I go and wherever I lead. And so what happens is the master would move from place to place. The disciple would be right behind them going wherever he went to. 
And so when Jesus calls his disciples as the rabbi to come and follow him, they followed very closely behind. And wherever Jesus went, there were the 12 disciples. They were right behind him. They were disciples of Christ. And when he went to the wedding of Cana of Galilee, I'm sure they're out there and they're having a great time and doing that Jewish dancing and they're celebrating with this new bride and groom and they're having a ball. And he goes by the Sea of Galilee, and they're standing there saying, oh, this is so beautiful. This is so awesome, Jesus. We just love being with you today by the Sea of Galilee. And they're catching all those massive amounts of fish. Wow. To fish and catch something, that's, that's a novel idea. Don't know anything about that myself, but it's, they say it's done from time to time. But there were other times Jesus walked among hurting people. A lot of heartache, a lot of pain, a lot of darkness. And they, they, they were right there and they walked right behind Jesus every step of the way. And, and there were times that Jesus walked among angry crowds and they wanted to throw him off the hill or they wanted to stone him to death and they wanted to attack him and they began to turn on Jesus so fast. And, and right there, you know, those hard, rough times, the disciples were right there following Jesus. Still they followed. But the last steps of Jesus Christ, he was carrying a cross. And he carries a cross, and underneath the weight of that cross, he can't carry it anymore, and finally he crumbles under the weight of the cross, and they conscript Simon, and he carries the cross the rest of the, rest of the way up Calvary. And they followed him, and, 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 and eventually, and, and we don't know how many all made it up there, but eventually the disciples saw their Lord and Savior being crucified on a cross. You see, it's, it's fun to follow Jesus by the Sea of Galilee. And, it, and it's fun to follow him at the wedding of Cana of Galilee. And it's fun to hang around him when all the kids are flocking him because he's such a man filled with joy and the children all want to be around him. It, it's, it's fun to be around him in those times, but when he's hanging on a cross, do I really want to follow and they're thinking to themselves, it's been three years of my three years of following Christ all been for nothing? And they're wondering what's going to happen with the rest of their lives. Jesus Christ hangs on the cross and he says, it is finished. And atonement is made for our sins and the veil in the temple is torn from the top to the bottom and entrance is made into the holy of holies. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Look at verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, if anyone would come after me. Now you get that? If you're going to follow me, if you're going to come after me, if you're going to be my disciple, he must deny himself and what? Take up his cross and follow me. See, we want to follow Christ when things are going well and when he takes us to pleasant places, but do I need to follow him all the way up to Calvary? Yes. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. For what good is a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his own soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes with his Father's glory, with his holy angels. You see... We fight to get our own way. We fight for my rights and my way and my will. And we fight for that stuff so desperately. 
But Paul comes to a place where he says, it doesn't matter what happens to me. If they kill me, it's okay. I'll be with the Lord. If they let me live, it means fruitful labor among the church of Philippi and everybody else. That's okay too. I'll do that. I'll do what God calls me to do. But he comes to the final conclusion for me to live is Christ. He had already died to his own will. He'd already died to his own rights. He already died to his own way. He had already been crucified with Christ Jesus. The apostle Paul was buried a long time ago, and now he is living with Christ in resurrection life. For me to live is Christ. I will tell you, Paul would say, I am crucified with Christ Jesus. And I will tell you, on the cross, you don't have many options or rights. You just simply die. Paul went on to say, nevertheless, I live, yet not I that live, but Christ liveth in me. So even the life that I'm now living, I'm living by faith in the Son of God, and he's living inside of me, and he is my whole life. He is my everything. Everything is Christ, and all I do and live for is for him. And I will tell you, when you find that place in life as a believer, as a child of God, as a Christ follower, it is the key to absolute joy. Because there's an abandonment to the will of God. So you don't have the stress and worry and heartache and frustration of trying to be in charge. I just simply do what God wants me to do. There's joy and liberty and freedom. You see, the trouble is many believers divide their life into two compartments. They have what is called the sacred compartment. That's my Jesus box. And so that includes church, and it includes prayer, and it includes groups, and sometimes a fellowship. But then I have my secular box. And that includes my job, and my family, and my fun time. And what happens is so often is those two worlds never meet together. And so we're very good at being Christian on Sunday. But Paul says, for me to live is Christ. On Monday, on Tuesday, at work, with my family, and the things I do, and the activities I choose, and everything I do, for me to live is Christ. Every day. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Why? For me to live as Christ. That is my purpose in life. Romans 12, 1, he says, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable sacrifice. Why? Because to me to live as Christ, I've already died to self. Now I give my life back to you. Hmm. Totally wrapped up in loving, knowing, and serving Jesus. That, that phrase, for me to live is Christ. In the Greek language, they didn't have any verbs. So the literal translation of those verses in the Greek is simply this. Living Christ, dying gain. Living Christ, dying gain. Paul is so occupied with Jesus Christ. Trust, loving Occupy with him. And when Christ becomes your life, you become so focused, nothing can ever steal your joy. Now, I want to give you a test. And then we're going to pray and take communion together this morning. And it's a fill-in-the-blank test. And you can write the answer down on your notes if you want to, or you can just kind of think about it in your head. But we're going to take a real quick, simple test. Fill-in-the-blank. For me to live is... 
Just fill it in. If you say, for me to live is money, then to die is loss. Why? Because you can't take your money with you. It's all left behind. It's all on the earth. Your money's not eternal. So if for me to live is money, then to die is loss. If you say, for me to live is fame, then to die is loss. Why? Because shortly after your death, everybody will forget you. And someone greater and smarter and brighter will come along and take your place. If you say, for me to live is power, to die is loss. Why? Because there's nothing weaker than a corpse. Right? Paul says, sown in weakness, raised in power. It's the weakest thing there is, a dead body. So if, if, for, if for me to live is power, then to die is loss. We work out for hours to make these bodies look great and strong and wonderful. and We stay in shape and all that. Well, you may add a few more weeks to your life, but listen, to die is loss. You say, for me to live is family, for me to live is friends, for me to live is sports. Loss, 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 loss. The only thing that results in gain is Christ. So when you put his name in the blank, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Because it's Christ in this life. It's Christ in the next life. It's Christ forever and ever and ever because you're, you're fixed and you're attached to eternity. He lives Christ. But I will tell you, following Christ will take you to your cross. But beyond the cross is the joy and the glory and the gain. And it's worth it. When you give your life away, when you die to yourself, the Lord then gives it back. And he gives it back to you. And then you come back and you say, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And so he comes back and he gives your life back fuller, more joyful, more exciting, filled with peace, filled with purpose, and filled with eternity. Thanks for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. We are one church at five locations, streaming online every Sunday morning at live.faithishere.org. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. And if you'd like to watch or listen to previous messages, or if you'd like to learn more about who we are as a church and how you can stay connected, head over to faithishere.org.